The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To look at how we are to worship God in our public gathering. When you think about aspects of worship, Bible reading, prayer, if I mention those things, what's the first context you think about them in? Usually in your private devotion, right? Well, yeah, I read my Bible every day. I, I pray you know, privately. And of course, we are to pray without ceasing. We, we are to be meditating on the Word of God day and night. But I think in our day, we tend to focus on the private way more than the public. But Scripture focuses on our corporate and public worship. It doesn't in any way say you shouldn't worship God privately. No, not at all. Rather, it does affirm that. But if you look at Scripture, if you study it carefully, you'll notice there's a lot of words such as assembly, together with one voice, congregation, even Christ declaring His name in the midst of the congregation. That's the gathering of God's people together. This is the emphasis that Scripture places. It's on our corporate gathering. And Scripture says we are to worship God in an acceptable way. Not just worship Him, but worship Him in an acceptable way. Well, what is that? Well, we saw first, it's based on God's will and not man's. That's what's called the regulative principle of worship, that God's Word alone regulates our worship. Uh, one Reformed theologian put it this way, what is commanded is right, and what is not commanded is wrong. What is commanded is right, and what is not commanded is wrong. So unless God told us to do it, we don't do it in the context of public worship. If He didn't tell us to do it, then it's wrong. And we also saw that we are in the special presence of Christ, and therefore it's sacred worship. It's a meeting with Christ. Therefore, it's a dialogue. He speaks to us. We speak to Him. And this all comes about by the Holy Spirit. Philippians 3 says we worship God by the Spirit of God. The Spirit is the one who is enabling all of this. And as we saw in 1 Corinthians 14, the Spirit is the one who commands us to have order and structure in our worship. A lot, of day, a lot of times in our day, when we think of the Spirit, we think of what? Hey, this is me just letting loose and doing what I want. That's of the Spirit. No, we see explicitly in Scripture the things of the Spirit pertain to order, self-control, and doing things decently. In worship. Now, with that basis established, we now turn to ask how are we to order our worship service? What should that order look like? And in answering that question, we cannot treat the Bible like an instruction manual. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 1, start worship at 1030 Mountain Time. Make sure you start with a call to worship, then a song of adoration, and then pray. Make sure your prayer is nine and a half minutes long. 
It, it doesn't say that. I'm glad it doesn't say that because I probably violated that at times. Um, by the way, if you want uh, to, to know what Scripture says about sermon length, I can point you to Acts where Paul went on past midnight. I'm not going to do that, of course. I'd probably, I'd probably be the first one to fall asleep. But one of the big issues, I think, of maybe some of the uh, influences in America, the independent fundamental Baptists and Biblicist movements, is that there's this assumption that we have to have every detail exactly laid out in Scripture. There's a proof text for everything, and it has to be stated in an exact, precise, explicit manner, or we, uh, we can't affirm it. And there's a tendency then to want to be certain about every detail. Right? Well, we, we have every detail nailed, and we're going to let you know it, and we're going to condemn everyone who doesn't do it like us, because we have every little detail figured out explicitly from Scripture. And that's just not the way uh, Scripture is meant to be read. But those of us who have grown up in these circles or have been influenced uh, we all have, because this is the context, America. Uh, there's going to be a tendency to not be convinced, to be skeptical, unless every detail is spelled out for me clearly and precisely. Like, you're missing a decimal point here. The formula doesn't add up. You must be wrong about it. And that's just not the way, uh, that's not the paradigm we are to be utilizing. We need to set that paradigm aside and not read the Bible like that. Rather, we take into account the whole of Scripture and we draw conclusions not only from explicit commands, but implications, biblical examples, uh, doctrines, even considering the purpose and nature of things. What is worship? Well, it's a meeting with God. It's a drawing near to God. It's coming into His presence. And so, rather than saying, here's chapter and verse, we ask questions like this. What happens? In Scripture, what do we see in Scripture when people come into the presence of God? And that's going to be our basis for today. And we're going to see three elements of worship when entering God's presence. We're going to see first a call to worship, second, adoration, and then third, confession of sin. So first, a call to worship. We see this throughout Scripture. I'm going to give you just a couple of examples. I'm not going to have you turn there. but for example, in Exodus 24.1, at that first worship service on Mount Sinai, uh, upon which God's presence descended, we read this. Then God said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Adab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Come and worship, God says. That is a call to worship. Now, obviously, with uh, some of the restrictions of the Old Covenant, but still there's a call to worship there. Saying, come up to the Lord and worship is calling His people into His presence to worship Him. Another example is Psalm 100, verse 4, where God the Holy Spirit says, enter His gates with praise and His courts with thanksgiving. God's gates. God doesn't have a literal gate. Okay? This is kingly palace language. Uh, his courts. That's temple language. The courtyard. Come into his presence is what this is saying. This is not 
a general call to worship, you know, turn from your vain idols to serve the living God. Rather, this is a call to come into His presence, for His people to gather for worship. This is a call to worship. And this marks the official start of entering sacred worship. Now, in our democratic government, I don't think we see the significance of being called into God's presence. Uh, this is because it was a common practice in the ancient Near East that you did not, you dare not, it was unthinkable to come into the king's presence apart from being called. Now, I understand that no one can just barge into the, the White House, even though it's the people's house. But still, the mindset back then was, was vastly different. We see this, um, for example, in Esther 4.11, where Esther says to Mordecai, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the, king's, to the king these 30 days. So we, we see an example here of needing to be called before coming into the presence of the king. And this was common in the ancient Near East. And if you remember from the book of Leviticus, this is why the priest wore bells on their garments. They say, well, that's kind of weird. You know, it's kind of like a Christmas thing. Well, no, what it is, is because they're serving in the presence of the king of kings, you don't just barge in on him. You have to alert the king that you're coming in and allow him to invite you in. And that was their way of doing it. Now, obviously, God isn't surprised for God's, oh, well, wait a minute, what are you doing here? Uh, rather, this is just symbolic to show this king deserves that same honor and more so. You don't barge into the presence of the king. You need to be called. And so what a privilege it is that we are called. That we are called into His presence. This is God extending His scepter, as it were, to invite us to come in. The call to worship gives us assurance that indeed we are welcome into the king's presence. And we should be more excited about this than anything else in this world. Yes, we do this every Lord's Day. Yes, it's not as exciting as an amusement park. But this should in no way diminish the awe of such a privilege. We get to come into the presence of the King of Kings. He has invited us in. We sometimes take more seriously maybe a special event or a special business meeting. Oh, I, I better be there for that. Or, well, I can't miss church because you know I got you know greeting duty or you know sound booth or whatever the case may be. Rather, we should say, the king has called me. That call to worship at the beginning, I know it's routine. But you understand, it's, it's God calling you into His presence. He's summoning you. Yes, through your appointed leaders, but it's nevertheless God saying, come into my presence to worship me. The King has called you. And we 
should respond to the King of kings. We have been granted access into the most holy place to commune with the living God. And even unbelievers are are called into God's presence to worship. Because these are the days of grace. This is the day of salvation. Come, hear what the King has done for you. Come and see. And become a true worshiper. Worshiping in spirit and in truth. A second element of worship when entering God's presence is adoration. And for this, I want you to turn over to Psalm 100. Psalm 100. And look at verse 4 of Psalm 100. Psalm 100, verse 4. Psalm 100, verse 4 says, Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. So here we have a call to worship. Enter His gates and courts. That is, enter His presence. But we are called to do so in a certain manner. How are we to do this? With thanksgiving. With praise. We come with adoration. Turn over to Psalm 95. Psalm 95 verse 2. The Holy Spirit says, let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him. How do we make this joyful noise? With songs of praise. Again, not only are we called into His presence, we are called to enter His presence in a certain manner. With thanksgiving and with praise. With, with a song. We come into His presence with a song. And what kind of song do we come in with? A song of praise. We praise Him for who He is and for what He has done. As verse 3 goes on to say, For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. We praise Him. Why? Because of who He is. Because He's a great God. We need to be reminded of this. That's why the psalm says this. And even our songs help us in this. And also because of what He's done. Verses 4 and 5 speak of God's work of creation and, and preservation and providence. And of course, we can certainly praise Him for His work of redemption. And what other reason to praise Him than to consider that this King came and gave Himself for you that you may live that you have an inheritance in heaven freely apart from any of your own works because of the price that He paid, because of all the work that He has done for you and He gives it to you as a free gift. He says, you are my child. You are washed. You are cleansed. You are mine. I love you, my child. And He has demonstrated that love in giving Himself up for us. What other Reason is there to come into His presence, especially since we have been called in that to praise Him. A third element of worship when entering God's presence is confession of sin. Confession of sin. It is a natural or reflexive response 
to encountering the living God. John Calvin says, For since in every sacred assembly we stand before the sight of God and the angels, what other beginning of our action will there be than the recognition of our own unworthiness? And Brian Chapel says, If there really has been no confession in a worship service, then there has been no real apprehension of God. Well, even part of the pastoral prayer, we're, we're, we're confessing our sin. And we see this in Scripture. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, if you're in the Psalms, just turn to the right, past Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and then you should reach Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. A well-known passage. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 4. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face. With two He covered His feet. And with two He flew And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. So here we have what's called a theophany. That is, it's a visible manifestation of God. And this is in the temple, as we notice in verse 1. Now, the temple, if you remember, is what? It's the presence of God. The place where God dwells with His people. The place where God's people gather in His presence for worship. And this is in the inner sanctuary, the most holy place, because He sees not just a reflection or a figure in the Ark of the Covenant with two angels on either side on the Ark of the Covenant, but he actually sees angels. And he sees God on his throne. And the angels are praising God for His holiness and glory. And that is Him in the presence of God, caught up in this heavenly worship. And what is the first and immediate response to this? Does Isaiah say, oh wow, this is pretty cool. This is neat. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Did he oh, gently sway while singing, I just want to praise you, praise you, praise you, praise you, praise you? What was he immediately prompted to do without first being told or commanded? Verse 5. And I said, woe is me. And and that means he is utterly condemned and destroyed. That's the worst thing you can say. For I am lost or I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So without being commanded or told, 
to do anything, Isaiah's immediate response and impulse was to confess his sin in the presence of God. And his confession of sin is rather peculiar. He confessed to be a man of unclean lips. Think about all, all that he could have confessed. He confesses to be a man of unclean lips. Who's Isaiah? He's a what? He's a prophet. What does a prophet do? Speaks the holy word of God to a sinful people. This prophet, this holy prophet, who speaks the holy word of God to people, confesses, I am a man of unclean lips. This is what happens when people come into the presence of God and apprehend His holiness. They recognize that they are sinful, even in the best of their works. When we apprehend God's holiness and majesty, truly, we are truly struck with our sin. We can't help but confess it to God. And out of all things that Isaiah did when in the presence of God, he did this. He confessed his sin. When you consider this, and especially as I've, I've looked at several liturgies, uh, orders, uh, order of service, uh, worship service historically uh, during the Reformation period, and, and also even current in other Reformed Baptist churches, and uh, as I studied this, it just, it's absurd to think about how this has been, re- the confession of sin, which used to be just part of a worship service, has been removed from the American evangelical services at large. And you look at the reason why it has been removed, it's because they wanted to make people feel more comfortable because of seeker-sensitive things. It, it drives people away. That's the reason to remove this? When we see here in Scripture that the first and and really only thing Isaiah did was confess his sin before the majesty of God? And even when God was here in the flesh, there was a recognition of one's sin. When when Peter got a clearer glimpse of his Lord while in the, the, the flesh while he was fishing, remember what he said to the Lord? said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Can you grasp who God is? You see your sin and you confess it. When we come to the presence of God and realize who He is and who we are, if the Spirit is in us, there will be a recognition of our sin. And we see this also when encountering the law of God. Turn over to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. You see this in Nehemiah 8. Here in Nehemiah 8, we have have a worship service going on. and Let me show you why uh, there's a worship service going on. We see this as a gathering for public worship. Verse, first of all, verse 1 says, And the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And so they're gathering together as one man. And 
I just want to take a moment to point that out. Gathered as one man. We, we, we live in such a, a culture where we pride ourselves on being independent individuals. That oftentimes when we think of worship, we think of our own individual private worship rather than as coming together as one. This unity we have as one body. And even as we see, as we saw in Exodus 24, they together answered with one voice. And this oneness, I think it's missed or downplayed in our culture. But when we come and gather together for worship, we're gathering together as one man with one voice. That's why we're not just off singing our individual songs, but we're singing together the same words. And, Ezra, and then uh, verse 2. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly. So assembly, that's a word for the gathering of God's people for public worship. Both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. The first day of the seventh month was a holy day of worship. It was the Feast of Trumpets. So they're gathered together for public worship. That's what I'm trying to show you here. And we see in the context here of gathered together for public worship, we read in verse 3 that Ezra read from the book of the law. So there was a reading of the law. And then in verse 8, we see that they gave themselves both to the public reading of Scripture and to its exposition. It says they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So public reading of Scripture and explanation of it. And I, I don't. And then we see the response. Look, look at the response to the reading of the law in verse nine. All the people wept as they heard the words of the Lord. The people wept when they heard the word of God, when the law was read. As I see this, I'm struck at how I don't think, myself included, how we truly grasp just how proud and hard-hearted we can be. How self-righteous we can be. We are so quick to notice and point out the faults of others. Talk about the sins of others. How the sins of others affect us. Mourn over our circumstances and mourn over the sins of others. We we could spend weeks mourning over a sin done to us without ever mourning over a sin we have committed. In fact, some may even get more worked up over a confession of sin than their actual sins. Whereas this was a natural impulse of these people when encountering the living God and having His holy law read. And we do see confession of sin in public worship in the next chapter, in chapter uh, 9, verses 1-2, through where it says, Now on the 24th day of this month, again another day for public worship, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads, and it's dirt on their heads, a sign of mourning. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins. 
and the iniquities of their fathers. So once again, we see Israel gathered for public worship. And while gathered for worship, they confessed their sins. And we saw how devoted they were to this. We see in verse 3, And they stood up in, a, in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. So again, we notice the pattern here. Reading of the law, confession of sin. And they confess their sins for, for a quarter of the day. Can you imagine that? We, we resist having to confess our sins at all for a quarter of a second, let alone do it for a quarter of a day. You know, one of the, one of the things that, that have scared me most, I, I just came to eight years of pastoral ministry. And here's one of the things that has scared me most in pastoral ministry. It's to see how blinding sin is. It scares me because as I see how blinding sin is, I wonder how blind I am to, to my own sins. Uh, just an unwillingness to confess sin. I, I see a lot of blaming it on the circumstances. Well, it was this circumstance and that's why things weren't going that well. Making excuses for it. And just such a blindness that it's appalling. You can paint an exact picture of that person. And they say, who are you talking about? Meanwhile, that person will spend a good hour detailing the sin of his or her own spouse. This is, there's such a hard resistance to confessing sin because we have spent a lot of time, if this is the case, because we have spent a lot of time hardening our conscience to our sin. Ignoring the voice of our conscience. And that flows out of not trusting that Christ will forgive our sin and has atoned for us and will cover us with His righteousness. If I don't believe that, then it's too dangerous to confess my sin because then I'm, then I'm in trouble. So I have to convince myself, no, I'm actually really righteous. No, I'm really actually doing a good job. No, no it's other people. I'll deal with those other people out there and I'll have a better life. Rather than confessing my own sin in humility. Now, we see what confession of sin looks like in public worship in verses 16 and following of chapter 9, Nehemiah. Uh, it's a corporate confession of sin led by the appointed minister. Uh, so it's not putting a microphone up where one by one people come up and say, the, 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 here's my dirty laundry. Uh, rather, because we're gathered together as one man, we're to speak together as one voice. And because... No temptation has overtaken us except what is common to man. We can confess our sins together in general with one voice. We have not loved the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We have not loved our neighbors ourselves. We have been proud in spirit. Uh, we have sinned with our tongue. We have been anxious and worried from not trusting the Lord. We have idols in our heart. We have done many such things. This is true for all of us. And so we can truly confess these sins together every Lord's Day. Now, why do this? What's the benefit of this? Let me give you several reasons to end. First, it should be the natural impulse of a Christian who has the Spirit of God dwelling in him. 
John 16 says the Spirit brings about conviction of sin. Second, we see this as a natural impulse when uh, in the presence of God and when His law is read. It, you see in both examples in Isaiah 6 and in Nehemiah, they weren't commanded to do it. They, they just did it. Because they recognized their sin before a holy God. Third, we not only... We, we see not only that this is the natural impulse, but in the presence of a holy and glorious God. We also see examples of this in public worship, as we saw in Nehemiah uh, 9. You know, one of the big mistakes we make is believing that there's a total break from the Old Testament. Well, that's just Old Testament. That no longer applies. And that's not so. In fact, that even goes against what the New Testament says. Uh, the New Testament says that whatever was written in the Old Testament is for whose instruction? Ours. Now we need to differentiate. So, for example, in Leviticus 4, the worshippers bringing an animal sacrifice to slaughter, and, and when he does that, he's bringing it into the presence of all, in the presence of the Lord, and confessing his sins over that sacrifice before slaughtering it. So there's this confession of sin uh, in the public presence of God. And we don't bring an animal sacrifice because we're not under the Old Covenant, right? But are we still sinners? Is God still holy? So we still learn from the Old Testament that we are to confess our sin when in the presence of God. And it's also very instructive for us in, in shaping our lives to confess our sin, especially with others. For one thing, what does the world often say about Christians? You guys are hypocrites. Do you think that charge can be more do you think that charge is more easily leveled or leveled in a more difficult manner when an unbeliever comes and hear Christians of one voice say, We have sinned, we are sinners, and then receive an assurance of pardon? Oh, you're a bunch of hypocrites. No, we're confessing our sins. On the other hand, throughout the week, guess what the world's telling you? You're so worthy. You're so great. You're so worth it. You deserve it. You deserve better. Don't let anyone uh, tell you you're not worth it. Talk about your worth. Esteem yourself. We don't want to make anyone feel bad. Here's a participation trophy. That's what the world is telling you. Look how worthy you are. Look how great you are. Look how wonderful you are. Esteem yourself more. And our flesh tells us that too. Now we don't want to just beat ourselves up to beat ourselves up, but the reality is what? We are sinners. We deserve condemnation. And so we come and we confess, Oh Lord, I have sinned. And then God responds and says, I have removed that sin from you. How great and glorious is that? To have that rhythm. And that leads to the, the fourth reason, is that it's cathartic, or that is it's cleansing. Now turn over to Psalm 32. Psalm 32, where David talks about his own sin and then confessing it. David says in Psalm 32, 
This is verse 3. Talking about the, the, the blessing of forgiveness in verses 1 and 2. And then look at verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So David describes in vivid language the weight he feels when he remains silent, when he did not confess his sin. Bones wasting away, groaning all day. That sounds like a pretty terrible experience. Doesn't it? Having one's strength dried up as the summer heat. Have you ever worked out all day out in the heat? And you, you feel so you feel like vomiting in the middle of the day. It, it, it's 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 a terrible, terrible thing. It's very draining. You can barely go on. You're dragging along. But this is what a guilty conscience does. It eats us up inside. It drags us down. It takes the wind out of our sails. We may put on a smile to others, but on the inside, we're dying. This also causes us to hide from others. Don't really want to interact with others. Don't want to get too close because they might see our shame. Kind of like Adam and Eve in the garden. The first thing they did is they want to stay away from each other. They want to cover themselves. It makes us critical of others, finding fault in others as a defense mechanism to deal with our own guilt because it makes us feel better. And then it makes us needy for the affirmation and approval of others. I need some approval somehow because my conscience keeps nagging at me. It makes it impossible to confess our sins. You know, your bones are wasting away. And inside, because of a guilty conscience, that's not really conducive for admitting sin. It makes us irritable and impatient because we're already suffering on the inside and we can barely handle any more difficulty, especially criticism. And Hebrews 10 says that a guilty conscience leads to dead works. It leads to works, but they're just dead. They're dead in that they're done out of a slavish fear. Trying to appease a guilty conscience. Trying to silence the conscience by dealing with the guilt through our own works. Trying to keep God's anger at bay. Hoping we've done enough to, to, to appease His anger. Trying to measure up in our own righteousness. That's, the, that's dead works. Rather than doing it out of gratitude for what He's done. This is a terrible burden. And one of the worst burdens we really can bear. And this is why David describes it this way. But what was his relief? Look at verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So the way out of the torment of a guilty conscience is through confession of sin. David said that once he confessed his sin, then God forgave him. Now, is David talking only about his conversion? Well, look at verse 6. It says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer to you 
prayer in a time you may be found. David says this is not for the ungodly, although the ungodly are, of course, welcome to confess their sins and the Lord will forgive. But this is for the godly too. Because while the godly are converted, they still remain sinful as long as they are on the side of heaven. The godly need to confess their sins. And this is consistent with what we see in Scripture. God's people confessing their sins. For example, David in Psalm 51 after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and killed her husband. Now, why confess sins if one is already forgiven? Why does David say that upon confessing, God forgave him if he's already forgiven? Why does 1 John 1 say that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive if we are already forgiven? Well, this is not talking about a change objectively in our standing with God. Rather, this is talking about subjectively in our conscience and experience. David describes a subjective experience here. His bones wasting away, his strength dried up. Well, it is that that was relieved when he confessed his sin. It's experiencing that forgiveness that God has promised that we have objectively in Christ. And this is what John means when he says that God cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That we have our consciences cleared from the mud and defilement that comes with our sin. Now what we're going to see next week is that this also comes with an assurance of pardon. As David says here with confidence, and as John also affirms, our sins are forgiven. God assures us that our sins are forgiven. And this really is an amazing thing, is it not? We have a God that forgives our sins. You know, when we confess our sins to other people, it very well may mean that we end up getting rejected. We end up taking heat for it. The relationship gets broken off. But God promises, when you come to me and you confess your sins, which I already know about, I will forgive you. I will remove that burden off of you. And God does that instantly, apart from any works of our own, any reformation on our part, any growth on our part, apart from anything we do, God instantly, with no strings attached, forgives us our sins. His work has perfected for all time those who have fled to Him for refuge. Our sins have been forever covered by the blood and righteousness of Christ. And so far from being a reason to not confess our sins, the Gospel is the reason that we confess our sins. Because then we once again experience the Gospel of peace. And this, is, this peace must be present for worship to be acceptable. As Isaiah 66 says, all these sacrifices were an abomination to the Lord, but, he says, to this one will I look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And as David says in Psalm 51, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. O oh Lord, you will not despise. We can have all the right forms. We can do everything right. 
But if this is missing, it's unacceptable. This is acceptable worship. So may we offer this humble and pleasing worship to our most majestic and glorious God, knowing that we are still sinners, but that all our sins have been forgiven for His name's sake. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we know that often we don't have this broken and contrite spirit over our sin, that we are often uh, broken and disturbed by the sins of others and the circumstances. And while those are certainly reasons to, to grieve and mourn, yet we often miss our own sin in it. And so, Father, we ask You to forgive us even for these things. We thank You for the forgiveness we have in Christ. We thank You for all that You have done for us and all that You are for us. Continue to conform us into Christ's image. Continue to work in us that which is pleasing in Your, in your sight. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.